Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. Daryl Bach is Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Former President of the Evangelical Theological Society, he is an internationally renowned biblical scholar and a widely known author of over 30 books on biblical topics. New York Times best-selling author of Breaking the Da Vinci Code, his latest book is Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World, which we will explore in this program. Daryl, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, let's, let's just start off a little bit about the new book, Truth Matters, and why you wrote it. Uh, what's going on these days that inspired you to, to write this book? Several things. Uh, first, uh, we're very, very aware of what's going on with uh, Christians who head off to campus, as well as uh, young kids who come out of the church and, and go to university. And the statistics tell us that many of them uh, graduate from high school and in the process oftentimes also graduate from the church. And we didn't think that was a good thing. We found that oftentimes uh, students who go to university aren't prepared for the kinds of questions about the Christian faith that are raised on the university campuses and that there is a huge public square echo chamber, if you will, uh, that says a lot of things about Christianity and raises a lot of questions about Christianity that young people, generally speaking, have not been prepared to answer by, the, by what they've learned at church. And so we wrote this book in part to kind of fill that gap and give them material uh, that helps them to deal at least with the larger questions that tend to come up about the Christian faith and about uh, the nature of Scripture and how it was put together and why uh, one can view it as reliable in the face of those kinds of skeptical questions. So that was one thing that we were doing. The other thing that we were doing is, is that at least for two of us, um, we didn't grow up in a Christian home. We came to faith as a result of taking a hard look at what the basis of the Christian faith is. That kind of thing, and and so we we know what it is to ask these skeptical questions because we used to ask them ourselves, and so from that angle we wrote it because we wrote it for a person who was in the situation with me when I went to college. I was not a believer, uh, but I roomed with someone who was, and uh, I would ask them all kinds of questions they weren't prepared to answer. And so this is uh, my joke is is that I kind of wrote this book to myself, uh, to 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 the roommate of myself when I was in college, to say here's how you can be of help in answering the questions, sincere questions that a person has, but questions that are generated by the way the culture views the faith as opposed to the way, um, as opposed to the way you may have heard about the faith. We've also got writings that are circulating and documentaries that are circulating in the public square that give a certain portrayal of the way the Bible was put together in early church history that we think only tells a part of the story and really in the process misrepresents what the real history is. So we're trying to correct that impression as well. Okay, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there <laughs> yeah. and jump in here. <laughs> 
Um, you've said so many things so far that uh, that uh, resonate um, with me as well, because I also came to faith as an adult. And as you can see, it's, it became very central in my life and work. Um, but I also had a different take on it as an adult, looking squarely at myself, as you said so well before. Um, so whereas I knew, let's say, you know, people who had called themselves recovering Catholics, for an example, uh, mm -hmm. people who, you know, leave the church because of experiences that, that they, I did not have those experiences uh, as an adult. And I sort of jokingly used to call myself a born again Catholic uh, instead, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also mentioned helping college roommates, and God knows that's always. <laughs> <laughs> in order. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I see here in your material, four out of 10 young people leave the church and never return. And that's yeah. really fascinating, you know, because, uh, for example, um, in, in a way, statistically, if we could go back over church history, many of the folks who came to the church, who became uh, religious or even, you know, going way back into, uh, you know, the saints and all, they, they came in at this age, which is between 17 and 22. This was the big, you know, thrust of the spiritual exploration, not just the hormonal exploration, um, but that seemed to be the age that captured young people's, you know, imagination about faith. And here we are in a situation where you're describing this is the time pe young people are walking away. Can you share a little bit more about that? Well, I think I think there are two things. One, I, I have to say I view some of these statistics that we hear that are high, have high numbers. I mean, 40 percent is a large number. Um, with a touch of skepticism in that, in that uh, my response is I'm not sure the jury is in yet on some of this. And what I mean by that is is that, yes, there's a group that walks away once they graduate from from high school uh, and once they go through college and begin to enter the business world. But there's another group that I think exists that we might not have our eye on, and that's the group that grows up, gets married, has kids, and then they begin to ask themselves, how are we going to raise our children? And I think that some of that group, some of that 40%, my guess is, is going to is we're we're going to capture on the other end if I can say it that way. Uh, we're we're going to get back. We won't get all of them for sure. And and 40 percent is way too many. And even if you got half that number, that's still 20 percent, and that's still high. But the point is, is that is that I think um, uh, that this never come back thing. I, I think we need a lar larger longitudinal study to know that that's really the end result of what where this group is going to be. This group hasn't grown up yet that we're that we've been measuring. So with that caveat in place, the fact is is that a lot of uh, a lot of kids do walk away, and I think in part it's because in the opportunities that we have had as a as a church to minister to young people, we haven't done them uh, the service that we ought to in terms of really um, encouraging the grounding of their faith in a solid way, so that when they walk away and maintain their freedom, the reason this age group is so important and it's always been important is because that's the age in which you make the decisions how you're going to live as opposed to having a parent tell you how you're going to live. And so um, so that's when you that's when your beliefs become grounded. 
And uh, and so uh, I think it's a very, very important age group, and I think the fact that there's leakage in the church, if I can put it that way, is actually a very serious problem for the church. And it's easy for the church to blame the culture, and I think rather than blaming the culture, although it certainly contributes to the equation, part of the blame belongs with the church itself and its lack of preparation um, uh, for these kids who uh, who then face questions, and, and the church hasn't given them a- answers, and so they think there are no answers. Thank you very much for that uh, response. And we're going to get into the uh, culture in just a moment here. But uh, why don't you give me an example of what you mean when you talk about the larger questions or problems um, that young people do not have their solid grounding in? What well, what, what comes we, up? We, we, we treated a variety of areas. It goes from the, the, the traditional problem of evil and how you explain the existence of evil in the world all the way over to, you know, was the Bible really a... a uh, exercise in political power. That's how it was put together, and, and certain power group chose the books that ended up in the Bible, and, and the other stuff that was out there that was also Christian that represented a diverse Christianity got chucked to the side, but that really isn't a reflection of what uh, the earliest church was really like historically. The variation on that is the story of in the beginning there wasn't such a thing as orthodoxy and then, and then variety of groups splintering off of it as much as uh, as much as it is um, a response of, uh, of uh, in the beginning, the claim is there was this wide diversity that made up Christianity, and one group won out in the political battle that emerged. And, and those, that, that story of early Christianity makes for two very different ways to view both the history of Christianity and also the nature of the church. Because if in the beginning there was a plurality of Christianities and no one had had a, a good claim on Jesus, they all had equal claim on Jesus, that produces a different kind of view of the history of the Christian faith and the history of the teaching of Scripture than if the idea was, no, in the beginning Jesus did pass on teaching to the apostles. There was a core faith and a core belief that went with that, and then what we get in history are, splintering, are splinterings away from it. Those are two very different stories. And the story that's in the public square is the first story, that no one has the claim to orthodoxy. There was diversity in the beginning. And the claim of, I think, uh, the scripture itself and the early church history, if you take a close look at it, is no, there was an orthodoxy, there was an apostolic circle, there was a place from which teaching emanated, and then the things that we see later on are splinterings off and moving, and in some degree, moving away from what that, uh, what that teaching was. Well, you know, I'll say that's a little different from what I was thinking of when I was that age, <laughs> uh-huh. um, in terms of the uh, the political aspects or the you know who edited what and and such. And I'm not sure if young people are, you know, if these are the things they're really getting caught on. I remember a, um, you know, for me it was more a matter of uh, you know uh, the heart softening up and being surrounded by a lot of choices. Uh, whether it was, um, you know, good choices, bad choices, partying choices, going off track choices, and that sort of thing. And finding myself, I guess, more dealing with the spirituality of it, which would be like the core of the faith. And we'll get to that as well. The yeah, the sort of, those... the sort of like, the um, you know, to have to make that choice uh, in terms of abiding one's conscience and the choices in college and high school around those things, I think, you know, what you I, I hear what you're saying. I, I just hear that these are these are the sort of opinions and things people can almost get stuck on. Yeah, in fact, and you know what I mean? It's sort of like a it's sort of like a mental conversation whereas faith 
uh, or coming to faith. Go ahead, you you share. No, I actually think these two things work together. I'm not dis- I'm actually not disagreeing with what the point you're making at all. I'm actually going to try and reinforce it. I think what happens is is that we create an intellectual climate that allows for, if I can say it, the heart to roam, and and these become. Uh, rational kinds of or plausible kinds of reasons to say, well, I don't have to take the Bible too seriously, and I don't have to engage with too much, uh, and and then so what? So the issues that draw the person away or that draw draws a person's attention, the things that you're talking about, um, become uh, more attractive in some ways and more more open for possibilities in terms of what way to go. And and what happens is is the importance of of scripture and faith work, working together in in character formation and in person formation gets shunted off to the side and marginalized by the kinds of things that I was talking about. Uh, and so they provide the excuse or the opportunity uh, to go there. And I'm not saying that young people think at this level. What they all they do is hear the echo of this stuff. And in hearing the echo of this stuff, the one message they do get is, I don't have to take that quite so seriously. And and in doing that, they set themselves up for, if you will, the drift. And so that's how I see those two things working together. I don't see I don't see it as being either one or the other. Thank you very much for that. That uh, that's that's very good material. Then they get married and have kids and say, "Oh my gosh, I hope my kid no- doesn't do what I did in college." Exactly. <laughs> and then right. it gets then it gets real important. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes it pulls them back on the boomerang. Actually, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's it, it is an interesting you know it's an interesting journey that we're talking about here, and there are lots of factors that are that are at work. But I do think that sometimes we by what we say, if I can say it intellectually or academically, we give ourselves the room and the space to do what we want personally. And uh, and I think that that's, that when I'm talking about the echo chamber, that's part of the echo that I'm talking about. I got it. I got it. Um, no, this is great stuff, because for me, this is where the the spiritual rubber meets the road, <laughs> mm-hmm. this kind of exactly. thing. And so in this now, I'm going to expand a little more now to the culture that you mentioned before. So engaging in what you have referred to as an increasingly hostile culture. Now, let's talk about that. Hostile towards what? And are you referring to the faith? I think there is a kind of hostility uh, towards at least aspects of the faith. There are certain claims associated with the walk with God, the uniqueness of Jesus, and those kinds of things that our, that our culture reacts to. Now, there's a variety of reasons why they do that. Um, some of it has to do with the history of the way religion has functioned, uh, in, particularly in the West. Um, things that led into the Enlightenment, you know, the basically, you know, you had Catholics and Protestants fighting wars. It was obviously mixed together. It wasn't just religion, but there was nationalism involved in it, and that mix was particularly volatile and led to a very violent period uh, running through, not just through the medieval period, but into the uh, period of the Protestant Reformation. You know, you had the Thirty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War. I tell people, we think World War One and World War Two were bad. Imagine a war that takes 30 years or, and that's just a, a piece of the cake when you talk about the Hundred Years' War. And people came to the point of saying, if this is where religion takes us, then we aren't, you know, we aren't interested in going there. And that led to a kind of marginalization uh, of, of religion. And, and so these kinds of factors that are deep in our, in our cultural past are actually partially responsible for some of the political and religious structures that we see today. Well, on top of that, now we've moved from 
uh, perhaps in a, a period where there was an embrace of general Judeo-Christian values and ethics, but a distancing of institutional religion to almost a turn against anything that claims that we're accountable to God in any way or in any sense. And, uh, and, and the tension becomes, do I relate to God in the way I conceive him to be, or do I relate to God in a way in which I recognize I'm a creature who's accountable to a living God who does reveal himself? Um, and I think there's pressure against the idea that we as independent adult human beings are accountable to a creator. And that's the pressure that I see in the culture, and that's the hostility that I sometimes see, and that's what I'm writing about in, in, in the book. Thank you so much for that. It's a, That's very interesting. Um about the culture. And, you know, as you speak, you know, I, uh, the, the phrase church and state came to mind as you were speaking, uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, in this nation, uh, we did divide church and state, but in a way that was to protect the freedom of religion. It wasn't, I don't think it was necessarily meant to toss it out or devalue it, which that's I think right. is... Freedom is, of religion, not freedom from religion. I mean, that's the, that's the way sometimes that distinction is made, that what we did was was allow freedom of religion, but the, the intent was never to take religion to the point where it becomes uh, an irrelevant part of a person's life. They just didn't want the mix of nationalism and religion that they had reacted to coming out of Europe, and which one of the reasons that many people got in a boat and crossed an ocean was to create some distance between that experience and what they had hoped for here in the New World. That's right. That's pertinent. I think in many ways we've sort of forgotten that as well. That's right. Um, so it's not necessarily that, uh, you know, the reason why you can't, uh, let's say, pray in a public school is because there's something wrong with prayer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a it, it's separated for a reason it, and, and so that the government does not abuse uh, privileges and and etc. Um, there's a there's a lot in there, I think, uh, <laughs> that uh, that we've sort of forgotten about a little bit. Now, you, you mentioned coming to faith as an adult and. You, would you mind sharing a little of your your own story or your own path that has led you oh, led you to where to you it. are? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I grew up very much. I mean, I went to church as a young child. I went to what would probably be classified, if you were to put it on a scale, as a somewhat moderate to conservative church. It wasn't a. It certainly wasn't a fundamentalist church, and it certainly wasn't uh, an evangelical church in the normal sense that we think of that term. Um, and I went to Sunday school a little bit, et cetera. And so I had an exposure to church, but I really wasn't. Uh, raised in the church when I when when I turned eight, my mom got uh, cancer. She eventually died at a very young age. She was she was 42 when she passed away, and she between the, at my age eight and 14, she had had six operations. She literally almost lived in the hospital over that last six year period. She was in and out on a regular basis as they were trying to deal with this cancer, and so that pulled me out of the church. I mean, we that literally we stopped going to church during that not out of reaction to what she was going through, but simply because of the family demands that her not being well put on the family. And so, um, so anyway, so in that time I drift, I mean, I had a church exposure, but I really had never embraced it or anything. And so I viewed myself in my high school years as an agnostic, although I had a lot of Christian friends who kept talking to me uh, about a walk with Jesus. Um, I have a very close friend who, uh, who went to camp between his eighth grade year in his freshman year, and I was a year ahead of him in school, who came back and said, you know, you really need to take this Christian thing seriously. And he, and I said, well, what do you mean? And all he knew how to tell me was, you need, I, I said he had a three-point message, 
you need Jesus, you need Jesus, you need Jesus. That's all he could about. He could tell me. And, uh, uh, so, you know, so that's kind of where I was to show you where I was. I, there, there was a, I, I had a potluck roommate in, in college. This sets up what I was telling you earlier. And, uh, a potluck roommate in college means the college selects who you room with for a year. I, I tell people it's a little bit like getting married without getting engaged because you show up and boom, that's the person you're living with for the next year. And you haven't, you didn't know him from Adam before you walked in that room. And so I uttered this prayer the night before. Now, remember, this is a prayer of an agnostic. Okay, so the prayer went like this. God, I don't know if you exist, but if you do, how's that for an opening part of a prayer? And then the rest of it went, please give me anybody but a Bible-carrying Southern Baptist for a roommate because I want to enjoy my college years. Amen. That was the whole prayer. Uh, I tell people, I tell people, there isn't, there isn't anything theologically valuable in any part of that utterance. But there it was. Well, I got to SMU where I spent my freshman year and to Bose Hall, three East, and I walk into the room, and the first thing I see on a trunk, you know, every college student has a trunk that their entire life was encased in when they go to school their freshman year, and on top of the trunk was a Bible. In fact, it was a holy Bible. And, I, I, and I, I, the moment I saw the Bible, I went, I think God answered my prayer. And lo and behold, my roommate was uh, Doug Mickey, who had, been, who had attended First Baptist in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay? I couldn't have gotten more Southern Baptist as a roommate than uh, what I had, had prayed not to have. Um, and that was the start. And basically, he couldn't answer my questions. He couldn't engage me at the intellectual level. But what he did do is live out his Christian life very, very faithfully. He was a great roommate, good friend. And, uh, and I saw the difference in his life. And so I tell people that what attracted me to the faith was tone first, and then truth came later. And, uh, and so he had a very significant involvement in in drawing me to the Lord in the midst of not being able to answer my questions. He had friends, fortunately, who he went to who were a little better grounded than he was, who could help him with some of the things that I was asking about. Um, and over that year, uh, God used that year to draw me to himself and to come to appreciate the uniqueness of who Jesus is and what it is that he's done. And that uh, drew me to the faith so that by that summer, the fellow that I originally told you about, who shared with me between the eighth, his eighth grade year and freshman year, was the guy I was with when I said, "I, I think I'm ready to to walk on this journey." Um, and so that was a that was a, a five year process for him, um, coming out of the one year that I had with my roommate. So that was my background. And so once I signed on, I signed on fully because I had I had really been brought through a process of of examining and considering. Uh, not only what the faith was, but the truth of what the faith contained and what it said about the human condition and that kind of thing. And so eventually um, I came to faith and have been uh, involved in in really sharing that story ever since. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) Um, And I love God's sense of humor in answering your prayer. Uh-huh. As it as it was. Um, now, just if, if you could remember off the top of your head, what would have been like one pressing question at the time that you said, you know, couldn't be answered intellectually? What was the kind of thing on your mind? 
Well, I had all kinds of things on my mind. Uh, you know, I had terrific compassion for Africans. Uh, you know, what about African people who haven't heard? I had, I, I had questions about evil in the world. Um, I thought that Jesus was just a wonderfully ethical religious figure, but not a not necessarily a unique figure. So I had questions at a variety of levels, and uh, and would rotate between them in these conversations with people because it also became a way to kind of keep them at arm's length by talking about everything else rather than getting them to talk about me and my own walk with God. So, uh, so anyway, so that's, so that's, that's just a sampling of, of, uh, of what's going on. Mm. Thank you so much for that, Daryl. And, you know, we're about halfway through the program already. Um, and so I want to get back to your book in the second part of the show and other questions um, regarding media and faith. But first, I just want to take a short break for a program ID. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with New York Times bestselling author Daryl Bach. Stay with us. I thought I did what's right. I thought I had the answers. I thought I chose the surest road. But that road brought me here. So I put up a fight And told you how to help me Now just when I have given up The truth is coming clear You Cloud 
Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with Daryl Bach, best-selling author of the new book, Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. Daryl, I've really enjoyed our conversation so far. Everything is so pertinent about what you're bringing up uh, regarding young people and faith and the culture we're living in and all the challenges. And I wanted to get back also um, uh, to a point we, we touched on media earlier. And you know, like yourself, I did come uh, to faith as an adult. And one of the things that really impressed upon me, I actually came across in college, um, where a film was shown called Brother Sun, Sister Moon, and which mm-hmm. was one very um, just, uh, I guess, shockingly, you know, touching um, part of my uh, development of faith. It was uh, one thing that inspired me and just uh, just touched me very deeply to my core about the essence of faith, breaking through, um, you know, to become our authentic selves. This is a, a film about uh, listeners, about uh, Francis and Claire of Assisi and the beginning of that Franciscan order. And, um, you know, it was just terribly moving and really touched me. And that was one of the things along the way. So, you know, we know that media has a, has a, can play a great part in both ways, either inspiring or, as you said, helping people to drift, <laughs> as you mentioned earlier uh, in the show. Can we t- talk a little bit, uh, coming back uh, uh, to some of these uh, talking points, about the trend of biblically-based Hollywood films, television programming? Um, what do you think of these films? How, how effective are they? an interesting phenomenon that we're seeing, and I think there are lots of things to say about it. First, I'll say that there are a lot of people in the church who don't get it, and, and what I mean by that is, is, and I'm thinking now of the, of the Son of God movie that uh, Mark Burnett and Roma Downey have been responsible for producing, and you get some people who are very, very immersed in Scripture who say, oh, they've made this change and that change, and it's not quite the Bible and that kind of thing. I even, I've even seen articles that say, oh, it's a drift towards Gnosticism and that kind of thing. So I sit here and say, well, what do you want? You know, on the one hand, you say you want Hollywood to produce something that that goes in this direction, and then when they do, you nitpick it. Um, Don't you understand that when you move from a book to portraying something on film, there's a lot of what we call narrative gaps in literature that you have to fill in order to, in some cases, make a story. Uh, if you if you tried to film the gospel straight as they were written without any changes or any juxtapositions, that kind of thing, one, you wouldn't even recognize what the Bible does with itself. Not every gospel tells the story of Jesus exactly the same way. And secondly, um, secondly there are inferences that literature has uh, that that allow you to fill in the gaps in a certain direction that are perfectly legitimate. And so... I view these these moves as as helpful to this extent. At least they're putting these topics on the screen and bringing it to people's attention, creating something to talk about. And I'm a, I, I give these works a little bit of space in terms of of uh, as they move from one medium to another. Um, so I view them for the most part positively. Now sometimes you will get the presentation of what I would call a biblical facade that really isn't doesn't resonate with the biblical story. It's it's using a biblical facade to go a different way. That um 
that sometimes troubles me when that gets done. But more often than not, uh, what people see uh, in what is being presented is an attempt and a reach for trying to be faithful, at least to the core biblical story. And and I'm actually encouraged to see more of this happening uh, now and again than, say, maybe happened 10 years ago or that used to happen much more all the time 50 years ago. Could you just give a uh, an example of what you mean by a facade? Uh, what kind of a and you know we'll talk. Well, I can mention specific films here as well, but what would be an example of that? That would be a little well, more troubling. I think that I, and I don't know what to make of this because I don't know whether it's true or not. But I I have heard because I haven't seen this film, but I have heard that that uh, that um, that. So a supposedly family value film like Frozen had an underneath agenda to it. Um, I don't actually know if that one's true or not, but if that were true, if that it does does sometimes happen, uh, if you know you're hearing the same rumblings about no, it's not out yet uh, about well, there's the biblical story, but then there's what's being done underneath it to to promote an agenda about the environment or whatever, something like that. You know, if those things are true, then then there's a problem. And sometimes I do think we get stories that reverse uh, the biblical values. The old example of this that, that is really a, a strong example that was artistically a very beautiful piece of work, but that uh, in terms of its content was troubling was the old Jesus Christ superstar, um, where Jesus was the key figure, etc., but questions were being asked and implications were made about the nature of his ministry and his nature of his relationship with Mary and others that doesn't at all reflect what, what is going on biblically. So that's the kind of thing I have in mind. You know, very often uh, secular media uh, do a good, in terms of, um, let's say, filmmaking, tell the story of conversion of heart very, very well in a way that touches huge audiences, whether they realize mm -hmm. <laughs> and are sometimes right. more, much more effective. Uh, a movie like, uh, we just lost the director recently, Groundhog Day, mm -hmm. uh, is one of those, you know, uh, here you are every day of your life, here are the people around you, you know, you can resent them and keep walking past them or, you, or your heart can be changed as what happens in this comedy. Um, mm -hmm. And actually shows, you know, that sort of what surrender to new life looks like. Yeah, um, and I, I, th I think Saving Mr. Banks is in the same kind of a category. If you look at that movie and you watch to see, that movie is about the effect of a parent on a child and how how that created the the book story of uh, of what became uh, Mary Poppins, but uh, the, then the trouble she had because of all the personal parts that were wrapped up in her story, making the move again from a book to medium. And so Walt Disney was trying to take a story in a way that made it a delightful story that people would connect to on film that 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 had to take some liberties with the book in order to go there. And she was struggling in this tension between, between the story that was hers that was personal, that she was... Uh, uh, retelling and, and and trying to recast through this Mary Poppins story and what uh, Disney saw as the beautiful part of who Mary Poppins was that he was trying to portray in a musical context for his film and the tensions that that introduced. I thought that film was, was very, not just beautifully done, but powerfully done with some great script writing, some wonderful acting uh, that that showed uh, the influence on parents and how that how that can impact an entire adult life. 
Thank you so much for that. I haven't seen it yet, but I will now. <laughs> um, no, but it's it is true. I mean, movies like uh, Field of Dreams that use baseball as the as the medium to you know mm-hmm. wind up with a basically a father, son, and Holy Spirit on a on a uh, in a you know suspended out of time on a cleared away field to, for reconciliation. Uh, I think you know often can tell a story um, and touch the heart at the core. Of of a faith that's about forgiveness and, and love, the, not necessarily about judgment and opinions. <laughs> that's right. And and, and and part of the way that gets done, it's important. Part of the way that gets done is the subtlety with which it is done. It doesn't come out and say it in a straight out proposition. It just plays it out and lets you see it. And that and and so it almost, it, in some ways, can bypass the head to go to the heart. Um, although, if you reflect on it, the writer who's really done a, a good and careful job, if you t- if you talk to them about their writing, uh, they're they're taking you a very conscious place, consciously this way, and and. Uh, and, and and it can be very, very powerful. And that's why I'm saying sometimes the church doesn't get it, because they don't get it in the sense of they feel like for it to be legitimate, it has to be said so directly. What's interesting, what's really interesting about this is that actually the gospel story about Jesus in many places is very, very similar. He didn't go around, if you ask people, did Jesus go around declaring himself publicly to be the Messiah in every place that he went? The answer to that question is no. In fact, sometimes he told people not to tell people he was the Messiah. And yet everything that he did showed that he had this unique connection to God and was bringing a unique message. He let what he was doing show who he was rather than talking about it. And uh, and, and that's sometimes what uh, what what movies do. That's sometimes how they make their message, too. Yes, by example, by example. Now, while we're here talking about culture and and media and such and impressions of things, um, one of your questions is, is Christianity credible? Mm -hmm. And I'd like to to touch on that. I've spoken, you know, with folks uh, and uh, people of faith around the world for four years now in all faiths. And... um, uh, Sometimes I sense that the, uh, you know, the Christian route is not necessarily as popular as other faiths, um, and I'm not sure why. It's something I consider uh, as I, as I live and breathe. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> that I there's I a. The that <laughs> so I'm kind of a, you know, it's just a, just even just you know empirically speaking as a researcher, you might say this mm-hmm. is an interesting uh, thing where, um, you know. It's just an interesting time that we're living in, and and what you're talking about with young people might have to do, you know, it kind of comes across sometimes as throwing baby Jesus out with the bathwater because of a problem or issue with the church, with the Mm -hmm. institutional church, Mm -hmm. Um, and then going back to find that, you know, the core of that spirituality later and, you know, and what people believe in. So could you speak a little bit to the, the credibility of Christianity? Well, I think the reason why Christianity runs into a hard time is because it makes it, at one level, it makes some pretty audacious claims. It, it is, it does claim to be a somewhat exclusive religious belief, and so that is seen in our culture, which is wedded to, doesn't want religious controversy, doesn't want religion to divide, and and wants to affirm a kind of diversity that has a kind of religious neutrality to it. That runs up right against it. Now, it's interesting that in doing this, Christianity also makes claims about the universal human condition that we all share, and that is that we all, we all 
uh, in one way or another, uh, rebel against God and need to reconnect with him. Um, and, and that's actually that underneath the message that's involved with Jesus is that assumption. That's what Jesus comes to deal with. And, and so at the very core of the Christian faith, this is going to sound ironic, at the very core of the Christian faith is a humility about faith that says, I need God, I can't fix myself, that runs against the way a lot of people want to do religion, which is, I need to fix myself. And, and so I think that, that that's where you see the tension, is that people people get that that kind of admission, if I can say it, or even I'll use a, uh, a, a church word, that kind of confession that's involved in faith. And for people who are proud, that's a very difficult step to take. Um, but in the essence of faith, which is this embrace that, yes, Jesus died for, I, for my sins. I need the gift of forgiveness that God offers. I need the cleansing that he offers to reestablish and reorient my relationship to him. In, in, in all that, there is a recognition that what I need, God has to provide. I can't provide it for myself. And that that gives an edge in the culture to the reaction of Christianity. And the reason I think that's credible is... I think that runs against most religious structures. Most religious structures say, I get to spirituality the old-fashioned way. I earn it or I work for it or something like that. It's, 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 the effort is placed in the ball of the effort is placed in my court rather than being built on a gracious act of God that draws me to himself and that turns my heart. And, and that contrast is hard for many in the world. But I think at the core, that's why Christianity is credible at a human level. Now, there's a whole other level of discussion of credibility that has to do with the credibility of the revelation, whether I can trust the contents of the Scripture, those kinds of things. That's a whole other discussion about credibility that I also think Christianity has to offer. But at its core, what Christianity offers is a very credible story about the human condition. And, and the need of how to resolve it. And that resolution comes not in thinking I can fix it myself. Thank you so much for that. That was really well said about the, I like that, the chronicle of the human condition. Um, because, uh, you know, scripturally, even Jesus had to turn himself over uh, and, and was the kind of role model to show us that any kind of growth, whether it's uh, getting married um, having children uh, involves some form of a surrender to new life um, and some death of a former self. I sound like I'm preaching now, <laughs> but I, but I, I, I think of this a lot. This is, well, you know, this is a lot of, um, this is, you know, I, I think about this a lot because I speak with, you know, people of faith around the world. And at some point, this topic comes up in some way, some thread about the about new life whether it's buddhism or islam sufism you know that in order to grow there there is some form of surrender to new life and we don't always know what's on the other side of that um but that may be part of the hesitancy in in all in people also somehow deep down knowing this that in order to have let's say a full marriage you really need to surrender who you were formerly <laughs> As it were, can't keep your yeah, you know think, your little think, black book think, or your little you know it doesn't. Yeah, and I think the difference that we're talking about that makes Christianity different than other forms of self surrender is is that is that um, Christianity says that the surrender that you have that is of faith is it, it, is 
has something supplied for you that you cannot supply for yourself. Um, and, and, and there's a need that you have that you cannot supply for yourself. You know, I can try and forgive myself, but forgiveness is really something, uh, in the end that has to come, uh, from the creator and a, and a sense that I have that from him is something I can't generate for myself. It's got to come from God. And, and that's what Jesus' sacrifice on the cross pictures. That's what his death for sin pictures. It's, a, it's an attempt to reconnect us to God by recognizing, I need what you offer. Jesus used the picture of a great physician. And the picture of the great physician is, uh, the way I like to explain it, is when I go to the doctor, I don't, tell him, I don't tell him what the diagnosis is, and I don't tell him what the prescription is. He's got to tell me what the diagnosis is. He's got to give me the prescription. The only thing I do by faith is take what he prescribes. And, and that's the picture that Jesus uses about his ministry and, and thinking about our relationship with God. We come to him as a doctor who can fix someone who is, who is, who is sick, who is damaged. And he supplies not only the diagnosis, but also the prescription so that we can get better and be restored. Thank you so much for that. Now, um, I'm also thinking about, since we started off talking about young people, perhaps in high school and college age, uh, as we were, you know, I find that on college campuses, it's kind of interesting um, that the, there are Muslim students on campus, but they don't drink and um, can often be bullied over that uh, because they, they don't take any alcohol. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, you know, how can, let's say, young people of faith who can embrace their faith, you know, help in terms of tolerance towards others, in terms of how, how can they go forward, uh, as you said, if we can, uh, even academia can address the disconnect that you were talking about before. Um, what would that look like? Well, I think the, ba the the main thing that would look like would be people living out uh, faithfully what it is their faith has called them to do and be as spiritual people, which means making you know uh, good and considerate judgments about what they do with their own lives and their own practice. Uh, uh, I'm I'm less concerned with uh, with how I tell other people to live than I am thinking about the quality of my own life and walk with God. And, uh, and again, coming back to something we said earlier, hopefully in living that way and in showing a certain quality of life, that ends up opening the door to conversations about, about what makes the way you live life different. This is what my roommate did with me, basically, and that's what part of what made uh, his life and testimony so effective, is that, is that he was in the business of, of trying to live out his faith, in showing his faithfulness and his commitment, and in, and in being faithful and in having integrity, there was a credibility that came with the way he lived that, that drew me into the questions of what caused him to live the way that he does. And I, I think that's the most uh, fundamental way uh, to represent your walk in faithfulness with God. Thank you, Daryl. I've got time for one more question, um, and I'd like to ask, since uh, you know there's a lot of persecution um, around the world and in all faiths, basically, including the Christian faith, um, I'd like you to touch on your point here about why Christians need to be able to defend their faith, and also ask, you know, does faith need defending? 
Well, I think faith does need defending in the place where it's doubted and where it can work as this kind of undercut that we talked about at the beginning of the show, where, where if you don't if you don't respond to the faith, and of course the defense here that we're talking about is is answers. We're not talking about violence, but uh, the defense here that we're talking about is simply. Uh, causing people to understand uh, and appreciate the credibility of the Christian faith. The way I like to say this is that, um, that we've gone from a culture in which the Bible was, was the answer, or at least an answer, to a culture where the Bible becomes the question. People don't even open up and look at the Bible because they don't think it has anything relevant to say to our human condition. And yet here's a book that has stood, in the case of the New Testament, you know, 20-plus centuries of value, and in the case of the Old Testament, 34 centuries of value from the time it started to be written and and has served humanity very very well and so all of a sudden we hit the 21st century and we're going to ignore this this human classic if i can put it that way and pretend that it doesn't have anything relevant to say anymore after it has served humanity so well after so many centuries and i go that's crazy um and so uh, so the Bible needs defending and credibility so that people will open it up, so they will take a look at, see what it has to say, that they will get a look at a, a at a slightly different perspective on things and maybe be challenged to think about the way they live and walk with God. And, and my hope would be that when they do that, they'll they'll come to appreciate the Bible and what it says as the classic work that it is, as an expression of of people uh, of deep faith who had a deep experience with God, sharing what that experience could be like. Thank you so much for that, Daryl. Uh, it's been a distinct pleasure speaking with you in this uh, in this program. Daryl Bach, author of Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. And um, before we close the program today, I just want everyone to know that your contact information and book information uh, is available at uh, our website, godspeedinstitute.com. So, Daryl, thank you so much for this conversation. I feel we just sort of uh, struck the beginning here, the tip of the iceberg. Um, But I want to thank you for being on the program and wish you the best of luck with your book. Well, thank you, Kara, for taking the time to chat with me. And uh, I appreciate the conversation as well and just wish you all the best. And before we close today's program, I'd like to give you a little update on what's been going on with the Godspeed Institute having had these conversations on faith with uh, believers, scholars, clergy, professors, authors around the world for over four years now. Uh, We are currently nominated for the Martin E. Marty Public Understanding of Religion Award. And I'm very happy about that. And uh, thank you, listeners, for all your support through these years. Uh, This program has been called an oasis. It's been called a wonderful time in sacred dialogue uh, by Mirabai Starr. Um, There's a real sense of meeting within the heart, says Llewellyn Vaughn Lee. Visit the website at godspeedinstitute.com and you can hear what uh, different folks uh, uh, think about the program, who have been on the program, and learned from the program. We've entered a partnership with Global Spirit called the first internal travel series on PBS. 
And uh, if you also want to have a look at my new book, my latest is called Inspired Relationships, Seven Saints' Real-Life Lessons on How to Live, Love, and Work, inspired by the lives of Francis and Claire of Assisi and Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross and other spiritual luminaries who found their authentic lives through the love and support of another person. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually-based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again, or send it to someone, simply go to godspeedinstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at godspeedinstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey. <laughs>